I always feel so unworthy to come and bring something, and yet as I study, I often feel like I get the most out of it, or I'm the most blessed by the things that I learn, and I hope to share something of that with you this morning. Now, Christmas is two weeks away. I'm sure we're all done our shopping and we're all ready. Um, For some of us, Christmas is a very joyful season. It's a season to, you know, take a break from work, to rest, to relax, to spend time with family, hopefully some good dinners, gifts. It's a time to relax and reflect on the previous year. For others of us, Christmas can be a lonelier time. Perhaps there's an empty seat at the Christmas dinner table. Maybe it's a time of illness or suffering. What can there be in the celebration of Christ's birth for us? I want to look at some passages this morning, or specifically a theme of God's name, Emmanuel. And I want to see that we are not alone and that we have not been forsaken. And I also want to answer some of the questions about Christ coming into the world. And I think the word Emmanuel helps to answer a lot of that. The questions I'd like to answer are, why did Jesus need to come to earth? What did his coming accomplish? And what does this mean for me? So as a theme verse, I want to look at Matthew 1, verse 23, but I'll read 1, 22 and 23, kind of as an overarching theme. So it's not going to be so much of an exposition of a text but I want to look at it more as a a narrative, topical overview of the word Emmanuel. Matthew 1, 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So just a little bit of context for these verses. The virgin here is Mary, the mother of Jesus. The son she bears is Jesus, and one of his names is Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a Hebrew name that Matthew very helpfully explains means God with us. So he would have been writing in the Greek, and uh, he explains it to his Greek audience that it's a Hebrew name, and it means God with us. So at Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of this son, whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. The Christmas story is at the center of a larger story of God's dealings with mankind that we find in the Bible. I want to tell part of that story this morning. So the story of Emmanuel, God with us, starts in the book of Genesis. So if we think all the way to the beginning of the earth, after the creation of the earth and all that fills it, the plants, the birds, the fish, and all the other animals, God created the pinnacle of his creation. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man was built for companionship and relationship. So if we notice, when, God's, when God decides to make man, he uses the plural for himself. He says, let us make man in our image. So the decision to make man was made in that eternal, unbroken fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in union. 
they were already experiencing that relationship. They were already experiencing that companionship. And in, the, in their relationship, they decide to create humans also for relationship. Notice also that he creates us male and female. God had said earlier when he had created the man, it is not good that man should be alone. We were made for relationship. Not only relationship between humans, but more importantly, a relationship with God. Now, in the Garden of Eden, we have a foretaste of heaven. We have a foretaste of what this worship, this presence of God was like in the beginning. It says that the Lord God walked with them in the garden. This was, in a real sense, the first glimpse of Emmanuel. God was with them in the garden. Then sin entered the world. After being tempted by the serpent, Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command not to eat the tree not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and mankind was separated from the fellowship he had with God. If we look at Genesis 3, verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden of Eden. The separation had begun and would grow worse. Adam and Eve had two sons named Cain and Abel. In time... Cain became the first murderer by killing Abel. After his crime and punishment, Cain complained to the Lord. This is in Genesis 4.13. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. So this implies that, in some sense at least, Cain had to this point enjoyed a fellowship with God where his face was not hidden. So here we see the beginning of the picture of God with us. Adam was supposed to tend and keep and guard this garden. He failed. He was our first representative. He did not keep and tend his wife. He left her open to temptation. Satan came in through the serpent and tempted her. Now the relationship with God was broken and they were driven out. Much later in the Bible, the prophet Isaiah summed up what had become the relationship between man and God. It was no longer Emmanuel, God with us. It was separation. And we find that in Isaiah chapter 59, the first two verses. Now this sums up the state of mankind after the fall. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This was now our new relationship with God. Our relationship now was not God walking with us and us seeing his face. Our relationship was now separated. The sins that man had freely chosen to do separated him from God. Now, right in the beginning of Genesis, God had promised a deliverer immediately after that first sin. He had promised an offspring, a descendant of the woman, who had bruised the head of the serpent. Now, in time, we're going to fast forward here quite a bit, but in time, God specifically chose the family of Abraham to be the lineage from which this offspring would come. His descendants, through his grandson, would become the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. Now, before they had a land of their own, the people of Israel were enslaved in the land of Egypt. After the Lord miraculously delivered the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by the hand of Moses and Aaron, here we'll pick up the story of Emmanuel, God with us. 
Now, as part of the instruction and law that God gave to Moses and then from Moses to the Israelites, he revealed that they were to build a tent or a tabernacle for his dwelling place among them. We see that in Exodus 25, verse 8. This was part of God's command. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So God's plan and intention and desire for his people had not changed. It had not changed from him wanting to be with us, his original plan in the garden. Now, we are still seeing shadows of this through the Old Testament covenant system and the Old Testament worship where he wants them to build a sanctuary so he may dwell in their midst. God even described the fact that their personal holiness and ceremonial cleanliness was to be motivated by the fact that he walked among them. In Deuteronomy 23.14, we find an interesting verse that says this, Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. In a real sense, God was with them. In another sense, there was still a great separation because of sin. Now, in the life of Israel, we see that tension between God dwelling with his people and also the sin that separated them from the holiness of God. God did indeed dwell in the midst of their camp. However, because of the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God, we see multiple layers of separation. Uh, First, there was the separation of lineage. To even have had the opportunity of living in that camp where God dwelt in the midst, you would have had to been an Israelite. You would have had to been um, from the tribe of Uh, or from the 12 sons of Jacob. Of those 12 sons, which all turned into tribes, all their descendants, only the tribe of Levi was allowed to minister in this sanctuary, which was God's dwelling. Of Levi's descendants, only the descendants of Aaron were allowed to be the high priestly family, and they were allowed to go into the most holy place. So there's a separation of lineage. Next, there's a separation of distance. Uh, when, the tribes of, when the tribes of Israel would camp, and you know they spent 40 years in the wilderness moving from place to place. Several places they spent a long time, some places less time. But when they set up the camp, there was a specific formula how they were supposed to camp. And it would be, it would be interesting if sometime you could look in a study Bible or maybe Google a picture or something and look at the arrangement of the camp. Because that gives us a picture of... Uh, God's dwelling in their midst. If we think of their camp, and if we would view it from directly overhead, you would picture it as rings of concentric circles. In the outermost ring is where the 12 tribes camped. So three on each side, north, east, south, west. So there was the first, all the tribes were protecting what was sacred on the inside. Now in a smaller ring inside that, were the three clans of the sons of Levi and also Moses and the priests. So they were right around the tabernacle. The the Kohathites were on the south, the Gershonites on the west, the Merorites on the north, and Moses and the priests on the east. So the Levites even protected the other Israelites from being too near to the tabernacle. Now around the tabernacle, there was a wall of hangings, and they were seven and a half feet high. So you couldn't even see over the wall into the tabernacle courtyard. 
And that was another barrier of separation. Like, we could not, even if they were close, like Moses and Aaron and the sons of Levi, they couldn't even see it. Inside the courtyard, there was a veil separating the entrance of the tabernacle from the rest of the courtyard. Inside the tabernacle, there was another veil separating the most holy place, in a way God's dwelling place with man on earth, from the rest of the tabernacle. So you can see there was multiple, multiple layers of separation. Yes, God was with them, Emmanuel, but their sin was still separating, separating them so much from God's presence. And then thirdly, there is a separation of time. Only the high priest could go into the holy place, but he could only enter in once a year. That day was called the Day of Atonement. Uh, Hebrews 9 verse 6 tells us a little bit about that. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So as part of the ceremony of the Day of Atonement, after having made an offering to atone for himself and his house, two male goats were taken for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. The priest would cast lots over the two goats. One lot was chosen for the Lord to be a sin offering, and the other lot was chosen to be a scapegoat. After sacrificing the first goat, this is what happened to the scapegoat. We find this in Leviticus 16. And Aaron, it's Leviticus 16.21 And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them, sorry, I just lost my place here. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." So Emmanuel, God with us, required there to be a separation between God and sin. Symbolically, the scapegoat carried the sins of the people outside of the camp and away from where God dwelled amidst his people. Moving forward in time some more, the tabernacle was replaced with a more permanent structure of the temple. A lot of the same restrictions applied. Now, the temple was not a mobile structure. It was, uh, had a foundation and it was set in place in Jerusalem. But a lot of the same restrictions of worship apply too. There was an inner courtyard. Later in Jesus' time, we see there's actually extra courtyards on the outside to prevent, you know, men, Gentiles could go so far, women could go so far, Jewish men could go so far, priests could go a little further, the high priest could go the furthest. You can see how they just keep separating, separating um, it out until... Only the high priest, the descendant of Aaron, he could enter once a year to the dwelling place of God on earth, the most holy place of the temple. Now, it was during the time of the original temple that the prophet Isaiah told of one coming whose name was literally Emmanuel. And that's in Isaiah 7, verse 10 through 17. And some of this ties a little bit into, if we've been going through the equip class about the uh, prophets and the, the dying the dying of the northern kingdom, and also the close to the end of the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah 7.10 Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, 
Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. As with many Old Testament prophecies, there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment for this prophecy. The near fulfillment, it was supposed to be a sign to encourage Ahaz, king of Judah, now, Ahaz was not a very good king. He, was not, he did not walk in the ways of David. Uh, he was an idolater, but God still had mercy to the descendants of David. He was being threatened. So if we remember Judah as the southern kingdom, he was being threatened by invasion from the northern kingdom of Ephraim, or Israel, and Syria. So it was two kingdoms in league. They were facing an eastern kingdom, which was Assyria. And they did not want to risk a two-front war with Judah in the south, Assyria to the east. So they were going to come and swoop down and see if they could get Judah first so they could focus on Assyria later. And the prophecy to encourage Ahaz was simple. A boy was going to be born. When this boy was still very young, the kingdoms of Syria and Ephraim would be deserted and no longer a threat. Now, there was a boy born to Isaiah. He didn't name him Emmanuel. And while that boy, I think before that boy was three years old, the kings of Syria and Ephraim had been defeated. So there was definitely a near fulfillment or a partial fulfillment of that prophecy. But there's a clue that this prophecy is of a coming son to be born who would have a greater fulfillment And it's found in the same section of Isaiah, just a few chapters later, in Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. Very common, familiar verses. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The descriptions of this son show that this could not have been fulfilled in Isaiah's time. This was a son who was to be mighty God. This was a son whose kingdom was to be an everlasting kingdom of peace. That obviously did not happen during Isaiah's time or to you know, King Ahaz's uh, sons or descendants. There was a future descendant of Ahaz who this is going to apply to. But notice how the description of this future son begins to fill in the description of the name Emmanuel, God with us. In this passage in Isaiah, it tells us, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, He shall be called Mighty God. So another, in a way, it's a rephrasing that this will be Emmanuel, God with us. So if we move forward in time again, 
Let's look now how these shadows, types, and promises are fulfilled in the coming of Christ. So let's return back to our theme verse that we started with in the beginning, and we'll look at that in context. So we'll start reading from Matthew 1, verse 28 through 25. Now this is the story of Christmas, a very familiar story that I hope we can see with some fresh eyes again today and fresh appreciation for the gift that uh, God has given us. So Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now looking at this birth narrative, of Jesus Christ, I want to answer those questions that we started with in the beginning. Why did Jesus need to come? What did his coming accomplish? And what does this mean for me? The two names given to Jesus in this passage highlight who he is and what he came to do. First, we see him called Jesus, a name that is tied to his mission on earth. Why did Jesus need to come to earth? His mission is clearly stated in verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That sin that caused that separation in the Garden of Eden and drove mankind away from the face of God would finally be atoned for. That sin that required the temporary atoning work of all those sacrifices, this elaborate system of sacrifices and tabernacle and temple worship that pretty much kept everyone away from the dwelling place of God with man, those sins were going to be permanently atoned for. Jesus came to earth for a purpose. Uh, Put simply, he was born so that he could die. His name, Jesus, it means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the personal name of God that he had revealed himself uh, to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus was to become the means of God saving a people. And he accomplished this by becoming the sacrifice by dying on the cross to save us for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 perfectly describes what happened on the cross. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sins that separated us from God were placed on Jesus. The sins we could not pay for were put on Jesus. Like the high priest of the tabernacle, how he put his hands on that scapegoat to take away the sins of the people out into the wilderness. In the same way, Jesus was the scapegoat for us. He took our sins and our punishment. He was separated. He died outside the city. He died outside the camp. And he took our punishment and our separation. He was forsaken. And he experienced that separation outside the camp. 
When Jesus cried out on the cross, he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And shortly after that, we read this in Matthew 27, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So Jesus experienced that separation so that the way into the holiest place was now opened. That curtain, that final layer in that concentric uh, target of keeping us away from God, all those barriers, that hardest barrier was now ripped open from top to bottom. And that was, and that was symbolic of the holy place being open to us. That sin had now been taken care, for, care of that was separating us. Now, the verse says, too, that not only do we have, um, not only was he made sin, but in him we are made the righteousness of God. So we also receive that. It's a double imputation. He takes our sins, and we get his righteousness, and now we are fit to fellowship with God. Now the way has been opened. Uh, Hebrews 9.11 summarizes this very well. But when Jesus... Sorry, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, secondly, so that's Jesus, Yahweh saves. Secondly, we see him called Emmanuel, and that's from verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he bridged the gap between God and man by becoming the God-man. I read in a commentary by Craig Blomberg uh, a little bit of how he was both God and man, and I thought that was fitting. I want to read the quote here. Though Matthew expounds nothing of its significance here, the virginal conception has regularly been understood as a way by which Jesus could be both fully human and fully divine. His father, in essence, was God through the work of the Holy Spirit. His mother was the fully human woman, Mary. As fully God, Jesus was able to pay the eternal penalty of our sins, for which finite humanity could not atone. As fully human, he could be our adequate representative and substitutionary sacrifice. End quote. This Emmanuel is the Son given to us who is mighty God. In the first verses of the Gospel of John, uh, we see how Jesus' Godhead is described. That's in John 1, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus was not only with God before all time, he was God before all time. He was present there back in the creation when the eternal counsel of God said, let us create man. That was Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. When they decided, let us make man in our image after our likeness, this is that Jesus, the mighty God also. So he needed to be fully God or truly God to pay the eternal penalty for our sins for which finite humanity could not atone. But he was not only just truly God, 
but he was also truly man. Later in the first chapter of John, we read in what way he came to us. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was born human and dwelt among us. When Rick had this passage a few Sundays ago, uh, we learned that the word dwelt here is a reference back to the tabernacle, God dwelling in the midst of his people. You could say that Jesus camped or tabernacled with us. And if you remember, the tabernacle was that tent, that mobile structure that they took and they camped around it. And the, they were, the tabernacle was in the midst of them. And Jesus, Jesus, our God, he took on flesh and he dwelt among us in a similar way and in a much greater way. So he needed to be truly human so he could be our adequate representative in substitutionary sacrifice. Now, I wasn't sure if this song was going to be sung today, and it wasn't, but it's, it's uh, well summed up in a favorite Christmas hymn that we have sung already this year. Uh, it's a Hark the Herald Angels Sing by Charles Wesley. Uh, the verse says this. This is the second verse. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Now listen to this line. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. That's a sermon all on its own. But there's so much rich theology and so much rich doctrine that we see that Yes, he is the Godhead veiled in flesh. He is deity. He was pleased to come dwell with us. And Jesus is our Emmanuel. Now, what does this mean for me? If, if you're not a Christian, this means that the way has been opened to be saved from your sin and the punishment that it deserves. It means salvation is offered to you today and you ought to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You don't have to remain separated from God. You don't have to have that distance. And Jesus closed the gap. He was fully God and he was fully man. I didn't pick up, pick up the quote, but I think it was Spurgeon who said, just like um, where Jacob had the dream about the ladder and uh, he's seen a ladder that reached from earth to heaven and the angels were going up and down it. And later Jesus references that too. And he said, you know, you will see the angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. And, and Spurgeon, I think, put it somehow like he was fully God so that the ladder reached all the way to heaven. And he was fully man that the ladder reached all the way to earth. And that connection was made in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you are a Christian, you already experience the benefits of this salvation. This means that our sin that had separated us from God has been atoned for. This also means some of those restrictions and separations from the Old Testament have also been done away with. So our lineage no longer separates us from God. Galatians 3.28 tells us, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The way to God has been opened for all. 
all those who are Christians are now of the lineage of Abraham. So no longer do descendants of one tribe get more privilege, and then the men get a little more privilege, and then the Jewish women a little less privilege, and then so on and so on outward. But now Jew, Greek, Gentile, um, barbarian, everybody has an opportunity. That door has been opened. It also means there's no time restriction on coming to God. We can come to him as freely and as often as we wish. We don't have to wait till Christmas. We don't have to wait till the Day of Atonement. We don't have to wait for anything. God, or Jesus Christ, God with us, has opened that door for us. And another thing that it means for us as Christians is that we are not alone. When Jesus ascended to heaven after his death and resurrection, he promised his followers that he would remain with them. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, Jesus said that he would be with them, and by extension to to us as well as his followers, to the end of the age. He would be Emmanuel, God with us forever. Now, how is it that he is God with us to the end of the age? The answer is found in John chapter 14, verse 15 through 18. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After Jesus, God with us, was done with his ministry on earth, He ascended back to heaven, but he did not leave us alone. He did not leave us as orphans. He sent us a helper, his spirit, to dwell uh, with us and in us. And that is our great comfort, too, that we can't think and be nostalgic. Oh, I wish I would have seen Jesus in the flesh. I wish I would have been there. But we have something that those believers did not have. We have the spirit, and we have the whole canon of scripture to guide us and to and to teach us. And what this also means is there's no longer a physical restriction that separates us from God. We, we don't have to travel to the temple uh, because we are the new temple. And I know it's a great interest among Christians to visit the Holy Land. And um, that's good. I would love to go. But um, wherever we meet and we gather as Christians, we have the Spirit with us. That is a holy place. That is a holy land. And there is not that restriction now that we need to go visit somewhere and make a pilgrimage somewhere. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And Ephesians 2.22 echoes that thought. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So wherever we are, God is with us. We as Christians, we experience Emmanuel, God with us, deeper than those of Christ's time. 
They were not indwelled with the Holy Spirit till after Pentecost or till Pentecost after Jesus went to heaven. Now, lastly, this morning, I want to look at one last passage that shows us that the story of Emmanuel is not just a story about the past, things that have been done, or the story of the present, things that are happening now. The story of Emmanuel is also a story of the future. And we see that in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, the first four verses. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God with us, Emmanuel. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So this story of God walking with Adam and Eve in in a paradise garden now finds its ending with God dwelling with his people in a new paradise, a new heaven and a new earth. So Emmanuel, God with us, God's original plan and purpose for how he was to deal with his people, even through all the detour, ends up at the same spot where there's a new paradise and God is with them in the new heaven and the new earth. So just in closing now, with Christmas coming up and us thinking about celebrating Christ's birth, you know, whether Christmas for us is a time of joy or sorrow, uh, pleasure or pain, for some of us it's a sweet time, for some of us it's a bittersweet time. But remember that we've been given a precious gift the most precious gift. We have been given God himself. So let us celebrate that at Christmas too. Let us celebrate God with us. The separation is gone and we are not alone. We will never be alone. And that is the most precious thing that we can have. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for allowing us to come together like this and to look into your word. And I thank you so much that you sent your son to come to earth, to be Emmanuel, God with us, that we need no longer be separated primarily by our sins, but also by lineage or time or distance or any other thing. I pray that you would impress that upon our hearts that when we feel uh, lonely or forsaken, that these truths would um, come back into our minds, that we would be reminded that we are not forsaken, we are not alone, that you are with us. And I pray that you would help us to be um, this Christmas, that joy and encouragement to our families, our friends, and the people we choose to uh, spend the holidays with. I pray that you would um, bless us this Christmas season. I pray that we could reflect back on a year where you've been good to us, and I pray that we would endeavor to follow you more and to um, worship you the way that you ought to be worshipped. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.